Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. If, for the sake of wisdom, death is better than birth, sorrow is better than laughter, and mourning is better than feasting, what hope has the wise man of escaping ruin? Is such wisdom truly wise? Or is it better to grasp righteousness without abandoning wickedness? God, the preacher explains, has made the one as well as the other. The person who embraces this contradiction is the one who fears the Lord. This week, Richard and I discuss Ecclesiastes chapter 7. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 77 of the Bible as Literature podcast, and I am frustrated. I am tired of the preacher telling me that nothing matters. I heard you in chapter 1, and I heard you again in chapter 2. By chapter 3, my interest was still slightly piqued. But now we're in chapter 7, and you're still telling me that nothing matters. Why that bothers me is probably because deep down inside, I don't believe the preacher. And therein lies the rub. So I have confessed my sins <laughs> on the airwaves. Can we get down to the business of fighting with this text now, please? Yes. This has been a wonderful struggle trying to figure out what this text means. I studied this 10 years ago in grad school, translated the entire book and had to comment on it. And I'm still struggling with the text as if it's the first time I've read it. And I think one of the things that's so difficult is all the reasons we have for the purpose of life he keeps poking holes in well yeah you know being wise great but it's kind of a hassle well we can work really hard and give something well it's it's a pain and you know what you pass on people might not appreciate we can be wise well people probably forget you eventually we could then just have a fun time yeah, but, you know, then you're just a fool. We could move to Greece, as John Stewart said, and talk to foreigners with that zesty lust for life <laughs> that comes with being a pensioner for 50 years. <laughs> but then the Germans will persecute us. So you can't even say that the Greeks got it right. So where does that leave us? This is where the preacher leaves us with this question. So let's keep going through the chapter and see where it ends up. I mean, this chapter to me is one of moderation. Just don't keep trying so hard. Take life as it comes. Realize you're going to be dead and be happy that one day you're going to be dead. As someone recently said to me, stick to it. Don't stick it to yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> be easy on yourself. <laughs> okay. A good name is better than a good ointment. And I just want to bring up the very poetic sound we have in Hebrew here. Tov, Shem, Min, Shem, and Tov. There's a play on Shem, which means name, and Shemin, which means oil. So the link between name and oil, between one's reputation and one's wealth, is related 
not just in these concepts, but also in the sounds themselves in Hebrew. The words aren't related etymologically, it's a coincidence, but the fact that they sound so similar links them together in one's head. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. So guess what? You've already had the hardest part, being born. Now you have only one thing to look forward to. That's death. It'll be great. And you won't have the opportunity to reflect on it after no, it happens. Yeah, reflection will be done. All your suffering, all your struggling, it's going to be done. All the struggling we're having today over this text, there's one reason for it, according to the so, preacher. We're alive. So here's the thing. Don't worry about your death because no matter how traumatic it is, you won't have to spend one dime with your psychologist. <laughs> you won't have to talk about what your death has done to you and how you are suffering because you had such a difficult death because you won't be around to think about it. There's no post-trauma when the trauma <laughs> is death. You don't have to worry about exactly. it. Exactly. So definitely the, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now here's the reason why we're having such a good time. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes to heart. So. The way that you become wise is you go to the house of mourning. You don't go to parties. You know, oh, I'm busy Saturday night. I'm going to a funeral. Thank you very much for your invitation. And this is how you become wise. No, I can't meet you for breakfast at Perkins because I have to get up early and work on this text. <laughs> and then I have to get my work done for my day job. And then contemplate the rest of my life until my death. <laughs> and sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. So... We're actually the opposite right now. Our hearts are sad, but our faces are happy. Yeah, but I know what that means. I lived in New York. I know the joy of being pissed off <laughs> and of being morose. There is something to that cynicism that's beautiful. Right. There's a wisdom there. And we've said this before in previous chapters. When your mind is focused on death, that is when you're able to gain wisdom. Right. Because when your life is all about just having a good time, you don't get wisdom from that. This is the difference between you know Nelson Mandela being in prison his entire life and what he was able to bring through wisdom versus Kim Kardashian who lives a life of pleasure who isn't able to offer any kind of wisdom. This is my only advice to parents who are struggling with teaching their children. If you're struggling with giving instruction to your children, it's because you're not thinking about your death enough. You are not coming to terms with your own mortality and your fear of facing the truth about your own condition strips your speech of honesty because your children come to you with questions that pertain to their own mortality that pertain to their own life and its meaning and its purpose and how they should behave and how they should deal with suffering and trauma and loss and if you yourself can't face suffering and trauma and loss you have nothing to tell your children except everything's going to be fine and grandma's playing chess with Jesus. Well, your kid's going to look up at the clouds and say, I don't see grandma and I don't see Jesus, so what are you talking about? It's a big question. You have to face your death. Well, and I just heard recently from someone who's an educator who said one of the big problems we have is we don't allow our children to fail. To learn how to deal with suffering that we have in life, I heard recently in a discussion talking about the different kinds of accomplishments people have and they classified them as resume accomplishments and eulogy accomplishments. What type of thing are you working towards? And one thing he said is that there's often a tension, a direct tension between these because what would be a failure on a resume would be a success for a eulogy and what would be a success on a resume might be a failure for a eulogy. And the one thing I like even better in the context of the preacher is that he said resume versus eulogy. When is the eulogy said? At the time of your death. 
and that when we put our mind to that last day, to what's going to be said at our funeral, we're already contemplating our death. And what is the important thing at our death? And that relates to the good name we have here at the beginning. What sort of name will there be once our body is put in the ground? This is, I think, why in the early church, the earliest saints were martyrs only. You didn't have any scholar saints or... or Emperor saints. Emperor saints or any of that nonsense. You had people who were worthy of praise in their eulogy anointed as an example for instruction. That reflects, I think, the wisdom here because we were joking earlier about not being able to reflect on your death after you're gone, but I think that's the point. The goodness of your name in the eulogy is not a benefit or credit to you because you can't credit the dead. That's why you can lift them up as an example because you can no longer harm them personally by lifting them up. It's an important wisdom in my view. But there's something selfless about it that is, I think, profound. Exactly. I believe that. And this is why the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. The way you become wise is to keep your mind in that house of mourning. And the mind of fools is always looking for pleasure. It's always looking for fun. And it is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. So it's always unpleasant to hear the rebuke of a wise man, but it's better. So this is the thing. Unpleasant doesn't mean bad. Unpleasant for your children imposing unpleasant on your children is not necessarily bad. It could be the best thing that they receive. So I don't understand parents who feel bad after they scold their children. I think that that represents a kind of psychological problem in Western culture. Because if you understand what the preacher is saying, you realize that there's joy in scolding. Because if you are scolding from the perspective of wisdom, it's an act of love. And you rejoice in your child's struggling with the difficulty that you've manufactured for them in your rearing of them. It's amazing to me. People are so afraid of suffering and pain for themselves. This is what I'm saying is you impose your fears on your children when you shelter them from the very thing they need to be formed as people. But you put your effort to make sure they have a wonderful birthday party with all of their friends and that they can have a good time. Because you believe this nonsense of modern psychology that children have to have an absolutely pristine emotional experience growing up in order to not have trauma as adults. Well, I have news for you. Your trauma is a blessing. It's who you are. The difficult things that happen to you, the disappointments, the abuses, the betrayals, your apocalyptic mistakes and the apocalyptic mistakes of others on your back, all of these make you the person that you are. And I don't care who you are, if you take the perspective of the preacher, you should rejoice and be glad in what God has handed you as your personality and your character. I think using the word apocalyptic is very good because only in your mind is it apocalyptic. In the course of history, it is not apocalyptic. God sets eternity in man's heart but we don't have the perspective of eternity. Right. Although we think that, oh my goodness, this problem is an eternal problem. No, you're no. going to die and the problem's going to go to the grave with no, you. No, your auntie was mean to you. Suck it up. Not to mention, even if you don't suck it up, she's dead, you will die, and nobody will care. 
Rejoice that you're going to die sooner or later. The crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility, hevel, a wisp of smoke, it's pointless. The thing I love about this image is that if there's a crackling of thorns under a pot, it means it's burning up quickly, and so is the laughter of the fool. You know, soon enough, those thorns are just not going to exist if they're crackling. Right. And that fool who's laughing, that fool soon enough is not going to exist. So, great, it's happy, and then it's just going to disappear. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So this is where things get difficult. Okay, we know that a wise man is better than a fool, it seems. But then things get tough, because oppression makes a wise man mad. That means the wise man is not set. Through oppression, he could lose his wisdom. A bribe corrupts the heart. With a bribe, he could throw his wisdom out. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. And this is what, like what you were saying earlier about the saints. The end of the matter is better than its beginning. You don't declare a saint someone who's alive. You wait until they're dead. Because then you know the matter. Going through your father's death with you and remembering my own father's death, you appreciate your father in new ways as soon as he dies. Within a week of his death, all of a sudden you appreciate him in ways that you hadn't appreciated him. Because death provides clarity. Provides clarity. And this is why the end of the matter is better than its beginning. And patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. And this is one thing I think we get wrong 180 degrees in the U.S. If you look at Silicon Valley culture in this country, it's not about patience, see what happens. It's Go for it. Make your dreams come true. Well, who are you to think your dreams should come true? ISIS made their dreams come true. That's not necessarily a good thing. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. And I think your comment about ISIS is apropos, because they're angry in their minds about injustice. And there is boundless injustice in the Middle East, boundless abuse by all parties inside and outside the region. And they're angry but what do they expect to change? What are they trying to accomplish? We've talked about this, how empires rise and fall. Is it worth being subsumed in that anger that you think is righteous anger? Or are you a fool? And I love this about this text. It always forces our mind to think and ask these questions. And that's exactly correct. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? And again, this is the myth of the paradise lost. It's the lie that the old days were better days. At the same time, it's the lie that the new days are different than the old days. What has been, the preacher told us from the very beginning, is what will be. Don't kid yourself, nothing changes under the sun. Don't waste one minute daydreaming. Don't waste one minute pining for something. Don't waste one minute being angry. Don't lose time being anxious about losing time in haughtiness of spirit. For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. A poor wise man is going to have a tougher time than a rich wise man. Money is not terrible, but wisdom is the main thing here. And here he talks about wisdom along with an inheritance or a patrimony as being good. So when a person dies, the most that they can offer the next generation is maybe some money for protection, but more importantly, the goodness of a name that carries with it wisdom 
that reflects the statement of the end of a man's life. And that can give you the basis for having wisdom yourself. You know, they talk about the different kinds of influence and respect you can get. There's the respect and influence you have with your title that'll get you in the room. But once you're in the room, what do you do to gain people's respect? Although both of them are corruptible, and you can lose both of them very easily. And here in verse 13, he speaks to the anger again. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Again, I call to mind the beautiful Chinese proverb, if you kick the world, it will kick you back. God has made the world. He makes things straight in Isaiah, but he's also the one that can bend things. He does what he wants. Who are you, O man, to think that you can make straight what God has bent, or vice versa? If you kick the world, it will kick you back. That's why your anger is folly, because anger presupposes the ability to do something about the crooked path. But your anger is self-righteous. It's not the just anger of the Lord, because you have no power. So chill out. Go to Greece, live on the beach, collect your pension. Before we, we saw that you know rich people are rich because God gave them money. Whenever we have a view of social justice where we plan to change the world, we have to keep this in perspective. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. We were talking about this earlier. Beyond your death, there's nothing for you to see. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. What's the difference between a righteous man and a wicked man? The righteous might die early, the wicked might live. So what's the point? So why strive to be righteous? Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? I mean, the righteous one, you may extend your life, you may not. The wicked one might live longer than you. And look what it takes to be wise. You can't listen to people laughing. You can't go to parties. you got to spend all your time at funerals. I mean, if you're going to be wise to the extreme, you're going to be miserable. Stick with it. Don't stick it to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? You can't throw out righteousness and wisdom completely because you don't want to be a fool or wicked. But again, you have to take this verse in context of the whole book because... In other places, he says, why should I even have been born? I don't want to be here. The day of your death is better than the day of your birth. And now here he's saying, why should you die before your time? So you cannot take any of these as axioms. He's exploring, as we've said before, all possible permutations and all possible avenues and all possible outcomes of these basic questions. So I want to be clear. I don't think he's saying that you shouldn't die before your time. And I don't think he's coming out with some fancy statement that, you know, moderation and all good things is virtue. I think he's exploring the question of moderation. I don't think it's a conclusion at all. You can't take any chapter, any half a chapter on its own. You have to be keeping the entire book in your head at the same time. And I think this is a challenge for any of our listeners and for us also trying to keep in mind what conclusions has he already come to and how do those bear on the points that he's trying to make now look here's the way i would say it look at american public figures you have mr rogers and you have martin luther king jr mlk did not practice moderation and thank god that he did not practice moderation because he fulfilled his purpose appointed by god 
Mr. Rogers was all about being mild-mannered and practicing moderation. And the guy was on television for how many decades and was a steady presence in the life of how many children in the U.S. during a period of upheaval and turmoil in the family where the TV became the babysitter. Mr. Rogers filled a void. He had a ministry. He practiced moderation and had a long life, a steady life, a calm life, a measured life. King died in his 30s. Is one life better than the other life? This is also the question the preacher is asking. So therefore, someone who has the temperament of Mr. Rogers has no right to criticize someone with the temperament of Dr. King. And Dr. King has no right to look down on someone who practices moderation while he's giving his life for the cause. And what I like about this book is it calls into question both Mr. Rogers and MLK because the real question is, would it have been better if they hadn't been born? Now, for you and me, definitely. We want him around. But I mean, look at what they had to go through. Look what MLK had to go through. You don't think there were a couple days where he said, it would have been better if I just hadn't been born? This is terrible. In his last sermon, he lamented the fact that he had to die. He knew he was going to die and he wanted to live a long life. But he knew that his choices and his commitment to the gospel led him to the place that he found himself. So even with that tremendous conviction... There's this uncertainty and this reflection on what does it all mean. It was like when I was... Why couldn't I live to be 80 and have a nice retirement in the suburbs? Why? The same cab driver we mentioned before, I was talking to him about Zorba the Greek and how he tried to make his friend's life easier and more lighthearted and stuff. And this cab driver reminded me that Cousin Zakis, the guy who wrote the book, ended up killing himself even though he wrote about this character who was about living in the moment and loving life and dancing one's troubles away, the one who created that character couldn't do it himself and he ended up killing himself. Which means that's what he was pining for. Which means there was something in his culture that he recognized that he himself couldn't grasp. It's a tragic figure. It's a beautiful fact. Well, and the character who was friends with Zorba was a tortured writer trying to get away from it all and write. And I think that there might be a parallel there because if you're wise, if you're always about wisdom, you're always going to be miserable. And this is a danger. Now, you can also be a fool and you can just do whatever, but then your words are empty and you have nothing to offer. What Zorba is trying to do in his book is he's trying to be wise and enjoy life. At the same time, his enjoyment of life is what gives him a kind of wisdom. It doesn't contradict what's here in the Ecclesiastes because it's him and his moderation, actually. Because he doesn't just do whatever he wants. Zorba also tries to help those who are suffering. The woman in the village who no one loves. The people in the village who are poor. He tries to bring a kind of business to them so they can earn some money. He wants to bring something to them. So he's neither too wise nor too foolish. He's neither too righteous nor too wicked. This tension exists in religion, and this is the problem with austerity in religious practice and stoicism. Because what religions want to do, and Christianity is certainly guilty of this classical Christianity, you want to say that someone who practices asceticism and lives up to this ideal is righteous. But that, in addition to being futile, because it's the work of man's hands and it's temporary achievement, it also lacks wisdom and it smacks of the problem that this text is calling out. Because why are you saying that the purpose of life is to make yourself miserable? That doesn't make sense. 
And then, of course, in the New Testament, Paul steps back and says, well, look, you're no better than the fool. So what is it you're trying to prove? What is it you're striving after? It's a shame. The Reformation is a shame. The damage that it has done to theology in the West and now in the East is a shame because both the Protestant perspective and the Roman Catholic perspective were in competition with each other to reconcile the question of faith and works. And it is purposefully irreconcilable. And so you have one religion saying works, you have another religion saying faith, you know, trust. I don't think they understood it that way, but that's what it is. And what do you have in the end? The gospel isn't preached. It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. So don't be wicked and don't be a fool. Don't be wise. Don't be righteous. But grasp one and don't let go of the other. Keep that arc that we talked about in the last episode. It's a beautiful vision of tension. Exactly. Hold on to one end, but don't let go of the other one. There's always going to be a tension. And the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. You can have wisdom, folly, wickedness, and righteousness with fear of God holding on to these. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. On the one hand, he's saying, if you just stick it to yourself, that's not correct. And if you're only wicked, that's not correct. Real wisdom, which gives real strength, is to stand and hold both ends of that arc and face the tension. So this is a different kind of wisdom than the wisdom he was critiquing earlier that leads to misery. And as we talked earlier, and you mentioned on Sunday in your sermon, the one who understands that the rulers around them have no power, have no true power, all they can do is kill me. But if you're wise, your mind is already in the grave. So you're stronger than those 10 rulers because there's nothing they can do to you. This is the strength that comes from wisdom. It's the wisdom of the shepherd who, when he sees Alexander the Great coming to conquer his land, simply moves his flock to a different pasture, doesn't waste time debating whether Alexander is good or bad, doesn't try to put up a fight. He just escapes through the back door. I mean, this is what happens in Genesis with the wells and so forth. You just keep moving your flock. You find another source of water. Do not lift a finger against your neighbor. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. This is what you mentioned a moment ago. You know, trying to be excessively righteous is just impossible, so don't worry about it. As someone asked me once from their deathbed, well, what about my sins? My response was, everybody sins. So let's move on now. Let's not lose time in the 11th hour despising the sins of your youth. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. This is a beautiful verse for managers. You know your staff complains about you. You know, they gossip about you. So don't listen. Don't listen because they're going to talk about you anyway. So what's the big deal? Everybody talks about everybody. It's the most important lesson in life. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. That's, That's how we what know. I was just saying. Exactly. <laughs> That's how we know that our staff curses us because we know we curse our boss. Right. And you don't really care about your boss. So when you curse him, he shouldn't take it too seriously because you don't take it home with you. Because what people do is curse each other. Because everything is vanity under the sun, (laughs) and human beings have nothing better to do. Even your reputation, you'd work so hard on a reputation, but, you know, they're all cursing you behind your back anyway. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. So, you know, you try to be righteous, but realize there's no one who can be righteous. I tried my best to be wise, but then I realized wisdom is still far away from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. 
Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate and to seek wisdom and an explanation and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. This is a beautiful judgment against those who are overly self-analytical or overly analytical in general. The question why just doesn't matter. If you're hungry, have something to eat. If you like someone, be friends with them. If you want to do something, do it. Don't sit there and question your motives until you become incapacitated because life is too short. And according to the Torah, you're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. So you can't be fruitful and multiply and sit there trying to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of badness ad nauseum. And I discovered more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. And here, before we go further, I want to point out that he's talking about finding a spouse. So try not to think about this in terms of men and women. It just so happens that the protagonist or the narrator, the active voice in the story is a male. So he's talking about finding a woman, but it could just as easily be about a woman finding a man. More bitter than death is the woman whose heart is snares and nets. It's a spouse who wants to trap you, whose hands are trying to hold on to you and control you. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. The preacher is trying to find wisdom, is trying to search out what's good. What's so bad about folly? What's so great about wisdom? He's trying to understand certain things, and he's trying to become more wise. But what would really be terrible for him in his pursuit of being righteous and wise is someone who is just trying to control him. And so having a spouse that's always trying to control him is going to make it impossible for him to pursue what he believes is what is good. Well, and what's interesting about this is that a domestic partnership can be overtaken by the vain pursuit of security and prosperity. It calls to mind in the opening chapters, the opening verses of the book, how he described his beautiful Midwestern suburban home with air conditioning and beautiful gardens and pools of water. You know, we had that nice imagery that he presented. That's the risk. I mean, the reason a spouse would control you is because that's what they want to build. And he's already said that's not the point here. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Through friendship and through partnership, he is able to find someone who can help him in his pursuit of wisdom but in finding a spouse he's always found someone who's tried to control him treating our spouses as friends who have their own ideas about what is good and about what they're trying to understand in this short amount of time in the short life that we have spouses try to control each other to yoke them in on their own pursuit behold i have found only this that god made men upright but they have sought out many devices so human beings are always looking out for many devices, and these are like thoughts, imaginations, plans. It comes from chashev, the verb meaning to think. Human beings are always trying to find a way. They're always trying to figure something out. This is what the preacher is finding himself in. He is looking for devices. He's looking for thoughts and plans in order to understand everything that's going on. But God made men upright. Just do your thing. Live the life that's given to you. And don't seek your own devices. Do your thing. Don't be so self-conscious. Don't be so self-conscious. Just live. Just live. Don't try too hard. Don't try too little. But don't try too hard. Live the life that God has given you. Amen. Have a great week, Dr. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. 
the Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.